You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The reading this evening comes from Exodus chapter 7, verses 1 through 13. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I will multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord had commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, just as the Lord had said. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we pray now that you would do a great work in your people, that you would help us to see you more clearly, that we might see the risen Christ, that you might even move and speak and breathe life into hearts tonight, perhaps for the first time. We pray these things in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. It's good to see you this evening. It is officially summer which means my four kids are bored. Uh, We are trying to give them more jobs and chores to do around the house, but there is also a bit more Netflix these days in this first week of summer than perhaps happens during the school year. When I was a kid, Netflix didn't exist, but there was lots of prices right. There was lots of Beverly Hillbillies and the Munsters going on in my childhood. Uh, we also had a ton of movies that I just watched over and over and again that were mostly like recorded off of TV like we did in the 80s. Uh, you'd see something about to start and you grab a blank tape and then record it. Uh, when I was really little, the Sesame Street movies were my go-to jam. Like, do you know of any of these, you children of the 80s? Uh, Big Bird Goes to China. Big Bird Goes to Japan. Uh, Follow That Bird, which kind of creeped me out. Uh, there's another one, maybe my favorite, which is called Sesame Street at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, or has, as we had handwritten on the VHS tape, Big Bird Goes to the Museum. Uh, have you, did anybody, has anyone seen this? No one? Oh, come on. This movie was my childhood introduction into Egyptian mythology and spiritualism. Because Big Bird and Aloysius Snuffleupagus, uh, which I didn't know until this week. Did you know that until like 1985, uh, Snuffy was Big Bird's imaginary friend? 
1985, they brought him to Sesame Street. Until then, everybody was like, oh, Snuffy, Snuffy. Anyway, uh, okay, uh, Big Bird and Snuffleupagus, they get locked into the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City after hours, where they then meet this boy king pharaoh. Uh, He's basically a ghost who had reigned 40 centuries ago in Egypt, and now he's locked in the Metropolitan Museum of Art, and he is trying to become a godlike star like his parents. At the end of the movie, he has to ascend this giant staircase where the god Osiris waits for him, and his heart is going to be weighed on a balance. If his heart is lighter than a feather, then he will be able to go and ascend into, uh, to become a star. Osiris, apparently at this, in this movie, though, forgot to bring a feather. So does anyone have a feather? Uh, Big Bird, our friend Big Bird has a feather. Uh, in which case, Sabu, this boy pharaoh, uh, his heart is weighed against one of Big, Bird, Big Bird's feathers. And even though this child is friendly and kind, his heart is initially found to be heavier than this feather. So he is doomed. But then Big Bird, Big Bird protests, and it's, he says that it's because that Sabu has been like locked in this museum in New York City for 40 centuries alone. He's so lonely, that's why his heart is heavy. But now he has friends, me, Big Bird, and Snuffy. Uh, Sabu, his heart is warmed by this, and then his heart uh, becomes lighter than the feather. Uh, and, he, and his cat becomes stars at the end of this movie. This is a Sesame Street movie, but it actually pretty decently reflects an Egyptian understanding of the afterlife, especially the afterlife of a pharaoh, of weighing his heart. One historian says the Egyptians believed that the heart was the essence of the person and thus the key to eternal life. Many of their temples and tombs depict a heart being weighed on the scales of justice. Anyone whose heart was heavy laden with misdeeds would be annihilated while anyone whose heart was filled with integrity, truth, and good acts would be escorted to heavenly bliss. We have been spending the last several weeks getting up into this point of chapter 7 in the book of Exodus, and we've already seen God mention and tell Moses about Pharaoh's heart several times. But in chapter 7, Pharaoh's heart is going to enter and come to the center of the stage. We've got the second half of chapter 6 to pick up some speed into this text in chapter 7 that you heard Chris read. So here, from chapter 6, verse 14 to 7, 13, we're going to consider four different characters in this chapter or so under three different questions. Who are Aaron and Moses? Who is Pharaoh? And who is Yahweh? Who is the God of Israel? If you're not aware, if you didn't catch on in the profession of faith that we read earlier, we're about to really jump into the deep end here, theologically. We're going to see that God is sovereign in mercy and in justice for his own glory. So who are Aaron and Moses? Aaron and Moses are sinful and stubborn men, empowered by God, by his mercy. So last week, we saw Moses object to God that God had sent him back to Egypt. It looks like to Moses that God is not doing what he said he was going to do. God said that Moses would bring Israel out of Egypt, and instead, their situation is just getting worse. But Yahweh doesn't justify his timing. He just reiterates to Moses that he is Israel's God, and he will be 
Israel's God. He will keep his promises. And in 6 verse 12, he reemphasizes to Moses and Aaron what they are to do. They are to bring Israel out from under slavery, under Pharaoh, and bring them into freedom. And then seemingly out of nowhere in chapter 6, we get a genealogy. Like that's kind of weird, right? But whenever you're reading through the Bible and you get to a genealogy, while it can be really, really tempting to, at best, just skim over it, at worst, just skip it all together, maybe you skimmed or skipped this genealogy as you read chapter 6 and 7 as you were preparing for today. I totally get that. But there is always a reason that a genealogy is included, even where it is included. And there's a reason here. At first, you might think that the author is going to go through all 12 tribes of Israel, starting in verse 14. We get, to, we get Reuben, the oldest son of Jacob, and then many of Reuben's descendants, and then Simeon, and then Levi. But then that's it for Jacob's sons. We just get the first three. The rest of these names that we see following in this genealogy are all sons of, or descendants of Levi. They're all Levites. Aaron is becoming the clearer figure and character here on both sides of this genealogy, before and after it, and perhaps that's the point. Who is Aaron? He is Moses' brother, yes, but he is about to become a more central character as this story unfolds. But is it just like, kind of like a nepotism thing? Like if you just get close to Moses, then you get elevated and you get to be an important guy too? No, Aaron is the one that is highlighted in this genealogy, not Moses. If we were just reading this genealogy by itself, we might think of Moses as Aaron's brother, rather than thinking of Aaron as just Moses' brother. God's promises and actions go all the way back to the promises of the patriarchs, back to Jacob and to Levi. God will be faithful to those promises. But then, on through Aaron, the story continues through Eleazar and through Phinehas, Aaron's son and grandson. The line of Aaron will be the line of priests, they will be the go-between between God and man, the ones to offer sacrifices, to urge the right worship of God. God's purposes for Aaron go back in time, leading him to where he is, and now forward in time. And this is exactly the setting that Aaron and Moses find themselves in on either side of this genealogy. God calling Moses to speak the words of God through Aaron to Pharaoh. He is the go-between. But Moses just keeps interjecting more and more protests. This time in verse 30, saying that he is of uncircumcised lips, which is a strange thing to say. He might be saying the same thing that he was saying in chapter 4 at the burning bush, that there's something about his speech that makes him unintelligible or difficult to understand, or just perhaps not too persuasive. Or after the strange circumcision episode in chapter 4, he might be saying that he is unprepared. He is unqualified to speak. He is perhaps like categorically unclean or something. But God just isn't having any of that. In verse 1 of chapter 7, Yahweh says to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. I have made you like, remember from the burning bush scene, I have made you like Elohim. I have made you like a master, a lord over Pharaoh. Of course, God doesn't mean that Pharaoh should bow down to and worship Moses. When we get to the Ten Commandments, the very first commandment will make clear that that's not what Pharaoh is supposed to do. The point here is that Moses is not just some random shepherd. He's not just some old man coming into Egypt and making some demands, but he is someone with authority. In fact, he is someone with authority over Pharaoh's own authority. 
But Aaron will speak for Moses' authority given by God. Despite Aaron and Moses' weakness, despite their excuse-making, despite their sin, which we haven't really seen of Aaron up until this point, but just give it a a couple of chapters. It's coming. And in fact, some of these characters that we'll see in Aaron's uh, genealogy coming, they do not do very well at all either. The priesthood is rotten after Aaron. But despite it all, God shows mercy on them that he might use them to bring deliverance and salvation, that God's grace is greater than all of their sin, that despite their sins being many, his mercy is more. And all of this to bring glory to his name. So who are Aaron and Moses? They are sinful and stubborn men, yet empowered by God, by his mercy on them. But if that's who they are, now let's turn our attention to the one whom they are confronting. Who is Pharaoh? Pharaoh is a sinful and stubborn man, hardened by God, by justice. And now we get to one of the most initially troubling bits of scripture in the entire Bible. Verses 3 and 4 of chapter 7, but I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. Why is this troubling to us? Why does this initially not sit very well? It seems counter to the idea of human free will. It seems to make it impossible for Pharaoh to do or to respond in a way that is pleasing to God. It seems to, in fact, set up Pharaoh for failure, for judgment. Not only is God going to harden Pharaoh's heart, but then he's going to judge Pharaoh for something that God did to him. This seems like monumentally unfair. So let's do some, crown, some groundwork on this particular guy first, Pharaoh. Well, it's absolutely true that God plays an active role in hardening Pharaoh's heart. We're going to see that Pharaoh just as equally hardens his own heart. As we get into the first nine plagues next week, it kind of goes back and forth. God hardens Pharaoh's heart, and then Pharaoh hardens his own heart. And it's kind of like equal hardening going on. God and Pharaoh hardening the same heart. And we shouldn't just gloss over that as inconsequential. There is a very real sense in which Pharaoh represents every man. A very real sense in which Pharaoh is a character study for what Paul might describe in Romans 1, where Paul describes ungodly and unrighteous men who, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth, push it down. Paul says that every human intuitively knows God. Why? Because every human can look around, whether it be the ants on the ground or the stars in the sky, and see God's creative power. Creation exists, and this is a very important distinction that we make in Paul's argument in Romans 1. Creation exists not just so that we might be able to know God, that we might perhaps understand God, but Paul says creation and the power of God in creation exists that we might plainly know God, that we do know God just by looking around. But, Paul says in verse 21 of Romans 1, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. 
Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Paul's argument is that every human intuitively knows God because God has plainly showed himself to humanity in creation, and yet we choose to suppress this knowledge of God. We don't want to acknowledge that God exists or that he is powerful or worthy of worship, and instead we exchange the right worship of God for worship of created things, whether that be ourself or like creeping things, birds and animals, some things that God has created. And so that's why the question of, well, what about the innocent man on the desert island who never hears of the gospel is really a non-question. There is no such thing as an innocent man on a deserted island. While it's true that this man may not have the opportunity to be unkind to other humans that most of us have, he will nevertheless want to replace the goodness and authority of God in his life and over creation. He will want to replace that with himself as the God of his life, himself as the God of this island or of creation. Maybe he'll even, like many cultures throughout time, try to find some religious meaning in an animal or an insect that he finds on the island or on the sun or the moon that he sees in the sky or some passing whale that he sees swimming by in the lagoon or something. Which just goes against every real spiritual intuition that God has given this man, that God exists and has created him for his glory. So this isn't a question of fairness. The real question is never, how could a loving God send people to hell? The question is always, how could a good and just and righteous and holy God allow people to heaven? And so what does God do, and how does he react to a humanity which hates him, which has rejected him? For many, Romans 1 shows that he simply hands them over to their desires. Humans don't want God to be real or to have any real effect in their life, and so God just gives them what they want. He hands them over to their desires. We might call this God's passive wrath, his judgment which comes on humans from his removing his presence in their life, from his removing any of his restraining grace in their life, and this is a terrifying terrifying place to be. A terrifying place where C.S. Lewis would say that there are two kinds of people, those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says, thy will be done. Your heart is hard against me, and I will let it stay that way. And perhaps even by removing my presence, it will be even hardened. Pharaoh is any person who resolves themselves to remain in opposition to God, who sees God's power in the world around them and yet still considers themselves to be the place of highest authority, especially for those who hear the word of God come to them and yet still reject it. And yet, on the other hand, Yahweh, the God of Israel, the creator God of the cosmos, is doing something specifically here with Pharaoh with this person. While God's passive removal of his presence may be unsettling for some, it's the appearance of his active and his intervening hardening of this one person that is more unsettling for most. So let's use our third question to consider what's going on here. We asked, who are Aaron and Moses? 
They are sinful and stubborn men, empowered by God, by his mercy. And then we asked who is Pharaoh, which we answered, he is a sinful and stubborn man, hardened by God, by his justice. So now who is Yahweh? Which hopefully we'll all begin to see more and more that he is a merciful and a just God over all creation. Who is Yahweh? The, the descriptions of God that we have throughout the Bible are that of a God who is sovereign. He is in charge of. He is over. And he is intimately concerned with the seemingly mundane details of the entire universe. We see this across the Old Testament and the New. We see this picture of God in narrative stories. We see this picture of God in like the poetic books, uh, the books of the prophets. We see this picture of God through Jesus' teaching in the Gospels. We see this through the doctrinal arguments that are given in the New Testament letters. This is not, we don't have some like jump to conclusions, Matt, in which we have now read Ephesians 1 for the very first time in our life or stumbled upon Romans 9 and now we change our entire understanding of how God works and saves. No, this is the story of the entire Bible, the Genesis story that comes from Exodus is a story of humanity's rejection of God. But God, in his mercy, moving toward and then calling a specific people into a covenant life with him out of their rebellion. It's a story of God's blessing on one hand and of human evil on the other hand. And yet God moving through and even using evil to accomplish his purposes. We've said before that Genesis 50 verse 20 might be a decent summary of the entire book of Genesis. It might be a decent summary of the entire Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. It may be even a good summary for the entire Bible. That what humans intended for evil, God intended for good. And this is where things get really tricky and really hairy. What Joseph was talking about in Genesis 50, when he says what you brothers intended for evil, God intended for good, what he's talking about is when his brothers both, when they, when they tried to first murder him, but then sell him into slavery. Like they got to a point where they were like, we want to kill him, but if we kill him, there's no benefit for us. There's no profit in that. We might as well just sell him into his eventual death so that we can make a little cash. This is wickedness. And yet Joseph can confidently say that God intended, God used even what they did for good. Now we might be tempted to say, well, aren't we glad that God is so adept at making horrible things that go on, horrible circumstances into something good. Like when humanity really makes a mess of things, God is really quick on his feet and can react so well that he can make something usable of a terrible situation. But consider what Paul preaches in Jerusalem in Acts 2. Jesus has just ascended to heaven. The Holy Spirit has just ascended on the apostles and on the first Christians. Peter is preaching to that city which crucified the risen Lord, and he says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, the man attested, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. This is the deep end. 
Peter's going to later go on, right after this, to quote from the Psalms to show that this had always been the plan of God. It was no happy accident that Jesus was crucified and that God the Father was just like observing in heaven. He's like, I got it. This is a terrible situation, but I, I think I know how I can use this. No, the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus was the entire reason that Jesus was born as a baby in the manger in Bethlehem those 30-something years before. Every Christmas we sing, and what child is this? Nails, spear, shall, pe- shall pierce him through. The cross be born for me and you. Hail, hail, the word made flesh, the babe, the son of Mary. This baby is the one that will carry the weight of the sin of humanity. The nails and the spear. But if it's true that the crucifixion was the foreordained plan of God, the plan for the redemption of mankind that was being moved along, not accidentally, but intentionally, so that there is no way possible that Jesus could not have been crucified on the cross. There is no alternative world, there is no alternative timeline in which Jesus does not end up on the cross. Then it must also be true that God is somehow moving through and intending humanity to participate in the greatest act of evil of our entire history, that of killing our God. That is... It was the foreordained and predestined plan of God for Judas to betray the Lord. It was the predestined and foreordained plan of God for Caiaphas and the other Jewish leaders to try him and to reject him. It was the preordained and predestined plan of God for Pilate to deliver him and the plan of God for these individual Roman soldiers to pick up a hammer and six-inch spikes and to drive them through his hands and his feet and then one to run a spear through his side. It could not have happened any other way. So what did I just say or suggest? That God somehow causes individuals to sin? No, absolutely not. James 1.13 says that God cannot be tempted by evil and he himself does not tempt anyone. Or 1 John 1.5, which tells us that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. Sin does not originate from God. God does not force or or coerce otherwise good-intentioned folks to robotically and against their will do something that they did not first want to do in large and wicked acts or in smaller acts that we participate in throughout the day of false or self-worship. And yet, we must affirm that God does move and act through the ordained wickedness of humanity. This is crazy. The book of Habakkuk is nearly all about how God uses the wicked, sinful acts of the Assyrian army to bring discipline to his nation of Israel. So what can we say? I'm going to suggest a couple of ways that have helped me understand the mystery of how all of this fits together, of God's sovereignty, but of also affirming human free will, how perhaps all this could possibly fit together. But in the end, we must just say it's a mystery. To paraphrase Calvin, we should do our best to exhaust all of the scriptures that speak to these things. We should do our best to give a good and deep thought to this, talking with other Christians who know more than us, reading books that Uh, have come before us, but then when we inevitably get to the place where we cannot still understand, then 
the reaction ought to be to worship. That we have a God who is bigger than us. Not to throw up our hands or throw out certain scriptures, but to worship because we have a God who is higher than us and we should actually want that to be true. Okay, so one way that we could imagine that this is, uh, all this fits together is the beginning chapters of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. For those of you who have read the book, who is it that sinned in those first couple of chapters by eating the Turkish delight and by pledging his allegiance to the White Witch? Who is it? Edmund. But who wrote the story? C.S. Lewis. Can we hold C.S. Lewis responsible for the sin of Edmund? No. In the moment, Edmund, of his free will, is choosing to sin. If you press this illustration, though, it will eventually break down and it will have his problems. Perhaps more helpful, though, might be thinking through the power of contrary choice or decisions of greatest desire. Hang with me for just a second. We've talked about how we wrongly think about free will as having the power of contrary choice. That is, if for a human to truly be free, this person must be able to simultaneously, on one hand, choose A or non-A. If you go to Cold Stone, you must, to have free will, be able to choose vanilla or non-vanilla, chocolate or strawberry or you name it. If you don't have that choice, you have no free will. But that's not how humans work. We will always choose what we think will make us most happiest in any decision that we ever will make. If I think vanilla will make me happier, I will choose that. If I think chocolate will make me happier, I will choose that. If I think that eating no ice cream at all, because it will be long-term better for my body or for my appearance, then I will choose no ice cream, because that will make me most happiest in the long term. In any decision, if I think obedience to God or choosing sin will give me more happiness in the moment or for the long term, then I'll choose that. And so it's possible that God could shape and form our desires in such a way that we are freely choosing that which we think will give us the highest amount of joy, and yet he has put things in place to inform and shape those decisions. When I was in third or fourth grade, my mom made some French toast sticks for me and my sisters to eat before school one day. I loved French toast sticks. I ate the French toast sticks, all of them. And about an hour later, I got really sick, nauseous, really sick. To this day, the mere thought, even this moment, the thought of a French toast stick makes me quite queasy. That is a very clear instance that shows why I do not like French toast sticks. But in most choices, there, is, there are inobservably complex chains of events that will, choo- that will lead a person to choose vanilla over chocolate because it becomes the decision of greatest desire. Or that one might actually say, I want to follow Christ. I want to choose and love Christ. These are free choices, chosen freely, and yet they have also been constrained by millions, countless causes and effects that have got a person to that point in their life where they choose what they choose. So this is the kind of thing that would lead the signers of the Baptist Second London Confession that we professed earlier. This is an adaptation of the earlier Westminster Confession of Faith, where they would sign and affirm 
God's providence over sinful actions does not occur by simple permission. That is an unsettling sentence for many of us. Instead, God most wisely and powerfully limits and in other ways arranges and governs sinful actions. Through a complex arrangement of methods, he governs sinful actions to accomplish his perfectly holy purposes. Complex arrangement of methods of getting sick after French toast sticks, perhaps even having a great-great-great-great-grandfather centuries ago who first trusted Christ and has endowed a, a legacy of faith through generations so that you grew up in a family hearing the Bible, hearing the gospel, and them choosing freely for yourself to believe it and yet constrained by God's action and his providence for centuries, for millennia, to get you to the point where you're choosing. And it's the kind of thing, all of this, that would lead one commentator to say this, that Pharaoh freely chooses to do what God had freely chosen that he would do. Come on. And so God responds to, I'm I'm telling you, this is good to think through, but at the end of the day, we get to the point where we still don't understand and we say, what a God. And so God responds to and through the sin and stubbornness of Aaron and Moses in a way that is altogether different than the way that he responds to the sin and the stubbornness of Pharaoh. Aaron and Moses and Pharaoh are both complicit in their rejection of God. They are both complicit of their doubt and their questioning and their hardness of heart. They are found guilty of their sin. Pharaoh didn't need God to harden him. His heart was already sufficiently hard. But God did have mercy on Moses. He did have mercy on Aaron, on Israel, which is the point of Romans 9. If you want to flip over there, check that out on the screen, Romans 9. Paul says, what shall we say then? Is there any injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. Like we said last week, if Pharaoh had just said, yep, you're free to go the first time Moses rolls in, perhaps the Israelites would have been tempted to worship Pharaoh, might have been tempted to worship Moses. Who knows? God is not forcing Pharaoh to sin, nor will Pharaoh be judged for something that he absolutely did not first want to do. Pharaoh isn't this lonely and kind boy king who's just stuck in a museum. He's not stuck on a desert island just wishing that he could love God, but he, if he just had the opportunity or something like that, no, he has already rejected God. He hates him with every fiber of his being, which God then solidifies that he might show his power. One commentator says, Pharaoh's heart was particularly important because the Egyptians believed it was the all-controlling factor in both history and society. It was further held that the hearts of the gods Ra and of Horus were sovereign over everything. Because Pharaoh was the incarnation of those two gods, his heart was thought to be sovereign over creation. The Egyptians thought that Pharaoh's heart was sovereign over creation, but these gods and his heart are not. 
And Yahweh is going to show the world that they are not. He is going to work in and through the heart of this wicked king that he might show his power. And that's where we'll see that all of this hardening stuff and all of these plagues are actually going. They are, yes, they are acts of judgment on Pharaoh and on centuries of wickedness of the Egyptians. But they are just as equally evangelistic acts of salvation, of love, of deliverance. Not only are these the signs, the means, they are the the means by which God will finally and ultimately deliver Israel, but they are the means by which the Egyptians, some of them, themselves will want to leave with Israel. Wait till we get to chapter 12. Some of the Egyptians are just dropping their foreign gods and wanting to go follow and worship Yahweh because of what they have just seen. These plagues, these signs, the means by which Rahab and Jericho, she will have heard of the saving God of Israel from miles and miles away. The means by which the world hears of God's kindness. The first sign that Aaron and Moses perform of turning a staff to a serpent should have been enough for Pharaoh to respond. The serpent, the very symbol of his power, the symbol that Pharaoh would wear on the center of his headdress, meant to frighten, meant to intimidate any who were in his presence, that symbol is now shown to be impotent, to be powerless. God is the ruler of the serpents. Yahweh will not be intimidated into serving Pharaoh as if Pharaoh were the authority of Egypt. In this precursor to the real plagues and signs to come, God will show himself to be the true authority, not just of his people, but of the universe But Pharaoh still trusts himself. He trusts the power of the Egyptian gods, which apparently are not made up or imaginary gods, but they have real power to imitate the power of Yahweh. Talk more about that next week, and then even into the first commandment as we get to the Ten Commandments. But after this first sign, because of the dual hardening of Pharaoh's heart, of God hardening Pharaoh's already hard heart, That Pharaoh then further hardens his own heart, and then God further hardens that heart. And after this first sign, we read in chapter 7, verse 13, still Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. All of this is setting the stage for the power of God to be shown. Everything up until this point, essentially from like Exodus 1-1 to 7-13, this is like preamble. It's a, it's a rubber band that is being pulled back. That the glory of the Most High God of Israel, the Lord of the universe, might explode onto the stage in Egypt. But the entire Exodus story is part of a larger rubber band. That the glory of the Lord might explode onto the scene in the person of Christ. Where Jesus might speak life into hardened hearts. That he might into hearts of stone bring life, making dead hearts of stone into beating alive hearts to God. The triune God is the one calling, the one breathing life. And yet, at the very same time, the author of the book of, the Hebrew, the book of Hebrews, he quotes from Psalm 95, and he says, even with an understanding that God is the one that can bring life to hardened hearts, yet he can still say today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And the same is true today. If you're hearing God's word, if you are receiving it, you are 
you should be receiving it in great thankfulness. If you find yourself loving Christ and hating your sin, praise the Lord. This is not natural. This is supernatural. What flooring humility this ought to bring. Why me? Why do I see and understand the cross, the the, the place that the world sees as foolishness, as stupid, as weak, and as dumb? Why do I see and behold it as the power of life? What a God to have spoken and saved And at the same time, this ought to bring greater urgency on our part to speak God's word to those who have not heard. This kind of theology that we're thinking about, this kind of like big God theology, should never bring an attitude of fatalism. Like, well, God is just going to do, he's just going to move in whomever he wants and chooses, so I guess whatever I do or say doesn't really matter. No. This kind of theology does not limit our evangelism, but it fuels it. Immediately following Romans 9 comes Romans 10. How will they believe if they do not hear? And how will they hear if no one preaches? How will these hearts come to life that God will do and bring through his sovereign power unless through the words of his people? Moses is the one who goes to Egypt. God just doesn't do something He works through the means, the ordinary means of human action. Moses boldly speaks, as we've thought through the past several weeks, and so must we. We can also say that God nearly always works through the means of his people. Not always, but mostly, including prayer. This kind of theology does not limit our prayer, but ought to fuel it. Like, we all intuitively know this which is why we actually do pray for people. If we did not think that God was the one with the power to change and overcome hardened hearts, perhaps even in our own experience of repentance, we would not pray. If it was just that, well, maybe someone might choose to believe and trust in God, then what use is praying? We should just go talk to them more often. But we intuitively know this We intuitively understand that God must move and overcome hard hearts, which is why we pray fervently and passionately and ongoingly and regularly regularly that he would. Perhaps you're hearing all this tonight and thinking, I don't know Christ. If I'm honest, I have lived a life of suppressing the knowledge of God that I intuitively know to be true so that I can worship what I want that I cannot worship him as he wants. I don't think that you're here tonight by accident. I think that God is concerned with the very mundane things of the universe. And he is concerned with you being here tonight and hearing of the gospel of Christ which saves. Do not harden your heart any further tonight. Please, please talk to someone tonight after the service here in this room or over dinner about what it means to throw the entirety of your life onto the promises of God through Christ. To be delivered from slavery to freedom. I have no doubt that some of the things that I've just said in the past 40 minutes or so might be tying some of your brains in knots. Uh, 
I know I've gone a little long, and I fully admit that I may have drummed up more questions or objections than I have delivered answers. I think I'm okay with that. I'd love to chat this week. I'd love to have lunch or coffee this week. Uh, A couple of books that we have on the bookshelf out here. This is the classic by J.I. Packer, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. How do those two things fit together? Uh, And then this excellent book called Big God, How to Approach Suffering, Spread the Gospel, Make Decisions, and Pray in the Light of a God Who Really Is in the Driving Seat of the World. Crystal's going to grab these from me immediately after the service and get them on the, sh- on the shelf out here so that you can check them out. R.C. Sproul once said, there is not one rogue molecule in the universe. And at first that seems troubling. Like if God is particularly involved with every molecule in the universe, then what about cancer? What about war? What about famine? But the more we see and know God, the more we understand his character, his kindness, his mercy, his love, the more we understand his holiness, his justice, his righteousness, we can actually worship and find rest in his sovereignty. There is not one rogue molecule in the universe, which means he is not surprised by your cancer. This is a good thing. He's not left trying to figure out some plan B, C, or Z to the problems in your life, to the death in your life, to the job loss in your life. This death, this suffering in my life is for God's glory to be made known on earth and if I am a Christian, it is for my own joy. Maybe not today, maybe not next year, maybe not in this lifetime, but for eternity. And I can trust him. Then sings my soul. The hymn that we just sang, first verse, is all about looking around at creation. And then it's about looking at the cross, thinking about God's revelation to humanity and then his revelation to our hearts that he might forgive sin. And when thinking about these things, the response of our heart ought to be great joy, singing my soul to my God, my Savior, to thee, How great thou art. How great thou art. Oh God, we pray. We pray that you would be high and lifted up. We pray that you would be bigger in our own hearts. That you would show yourself to be big, to be great, to be huge in the life of this church, in our city, and in the world. And yet, while you are too grand, while you are too immense, too glorious for us to comprehend, you have made yourself known to us. You have made yourself known to us as friend and as father. Help us to know, help us to experience your deep, deep love for us in Christ. In his name we pray, amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.